Good morning. My name is Ian. I get to serve as one of the elders here, and I'm really excited to be able to Philip for setting everything up last week. I think he did a great job, and if you haven't had a chance to go hear it, um, I think you should go back and listen to it. Uh, I wanted to take just a minute and review the three motifs that uh, Philip said that we're going to be focusing on throughout the book of Mark. And those three mo motifs are first, Peter's voice. Uh, the Apostle Peter uh, was behind the book of Mark. Uh, Mark was the author, but uh, he was not there present. He was a translator for Peter and later shared what he heard and, and wrote down the book of Mark. So we get to hear Peter's special voice, uh, to things that Peter witnessed, things that Peter experienced. So it's a lot of his perspective, even though it's not his book. Uh, the second is in the book of Mark, we're going to look at how Jesus answers all the longings of the human heart. And then the third motif uh, that we'll look at in the book of Mark uh, as we go through this series is Jesus' identity, uh, that Jesus slowly reveals who he is in God's plan to rescue the world. So I wanted to start by asking, have you ever had to clean up somebody else's mess? I see a few moms out there who are like, mad I would even ask that question, right? Um, you guys know the baptismal behind me, I know the screen is blocking it, but the baptismal behind me that uh, we do baptisms in, what you probably don't know is that it takes about three to four hours to fill that thing up. So anytime you see somebody baptized here on Sunday, um, maybe just say, say a prayer of thankfulness for the deacon who is there, killed half their Saturday to fill up the, the baptismal. Um, but of course, I had a really great plan. Um, I was doing a walkthrough with somebody who's going to be baptized on Saturday, and I thought, this is great, I'll just start filling up this baptismal and then I'll leave it, it'll run, and a deacon will come, and the deacon will be able to turn the water off, they won't have to hang out here, it's a great plan. And I know what you're thinking, but here's the thing, there were two overflow drains, right? Just like you have in your bathtub, so the bathtub doesn't overflow, there's two overflow drains up there, one of them is like right at the tippy top, and then the other one is about three quarters of the way down, and the one at the tippy top is all always open, but the one at the three quarters way down had a plug in it, so I thought, I'm gonna undo this plug too, right? There'll be two overflow drains, even if the water fills up faster than we thought, there's no way that it's gonna overflow. Well, it turns out there's a reason that that drain has a plug in it. The reason is that it just goes directly into the wall. So, I got a call from a deacon about 8.30 on a Saturday night and said, Ian, there is water running down the main floor from the ceiling, there's about two inches of standing water in the basement, we're in trouble, we need to do something. So I ran over here, I called the First Baptist folks, we assembled a dream team of uh, spill kit cleanup, and uh, we cleaned it all up, and we were here till maybe 11.30 midnight at night. Next Sunday, you guys didn't know a thing, uh, besides maybe a little wet carpet. So I tell that story uh, mostly because I think of when we read through the book of Mark, uh, and I'm reminded of this misconception that a lot of us have about God and Jesus and the way they interact with the world. I think sometimes we think that God walks in on us and sees all of our mess overflowing and he panics. He thinks, my goodness, I didn't know this was gonna happen. And he calls up Jesus and says, we need to assemble the emergency spill team and, uh, and find a way to, to solve the universe. And, and Jesus is like, oh, I'll go to earth, we'll figure it all out. Uh, but when you read through the book of Mark, that's a completely different than what, uh, what the book of Mark portrays. And we see that God has had a plan from day one, that Jesus has been a plan from the very beginning for the, our salvation and for the salvation of the world. 
And so today we're going to look at the first eight verses of the chapter uh, or of the book of Mark. Um, and a lot of the other gospels, they take their time, right? They do uh, introductions and the genealogy of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, or the story of John the Baptist and how he was born. All that's good stuff, but not Mark. Mark doesn't waste any time. Uh, he just jumps right in. So let's take a verse, uh, a look at verse one, and we'll see what we're in for. Mark one, verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, so at first read, it sounds pretty familiar to us, right? In fact, I'd be willing to bet that if you read this on your own, you would just breeze right through this verse. Because we already know this, right? We know it's the gospel of Mark. We know that it's about Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Great, got it, check. But take a minute. Take a minute to think about what it would be like for a first century Christian to be reading these verses. Remember, Mark is the very first of the written Gospels, even though it doesn't come first in our Bible. And, uh, and we use this word gospel to mean two different things now. We use it to mean these first four books, right? The first four stories of Jesus and his life and his death, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But we also use it to mean good news, right? The good news of Jesus. And we might say something at True North like, we want to see the gospel take root in the city of Anchorage. Well, what do we mean by that? We mean not that we want people to read these specific four books. We mean that we want people to hear and understand and believe the good news of about what Jesus has done for them. But first century Christians reading this for the first time, they wouldn't have that 2,000 years of church history to know what they were talking about. That word gospel wouldn't just be a part of their Christian culture that they would know. And so this is telling them something. It's telling them that... This story is good news, that they're about to hear something that's good for them. Now, some of the early Christians, they would have heard this before. Either they were converts who had read uh, some Jewish scriptures, or they were Jews who knew their scripture well. But uh, this term gospel, or good news, is really common in the Old Testament. It's used a lot. Uh, one particularly relevant passage, and this is from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 52.7 says, How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news. It's the same word there. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You see, these prophets have been speaking about this good news for many years prior. And in this good news that Isaiah speaks about, the messenger brings good news of peace, happiness, salvation. The messenger is telling the people of Israel that your God reigns. We hear the Old Testament prophets speaking about the good news of a God that, of a God who delivers peace with God, salvation, and they're doing this hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth, but the good news is the same. So the second part of this introductory sentence, back to Mark 1.1, is a major spoiler for the rest of the book of Mark. You see, when the people of Israel were looking forward to the coming Messiah, they were expecting a king to come, to lead them to victory, Many of God's people imagined a warrior uh, to come lead them from salvation from their enemies uh, or from those who were oppressing them. Or many of them imagined a leader like Moses who would lead them out of the wilderness and to the promised land. But the book of Mark, the first of these written gospels, reveals a savior who looks quite a bit different than what people were expecting. And we see this as Jesus slowly reveals who he is to his disciples. Last week, we called this progressive revelation. 
Jesus slowly reveals who he is to his disciples and to the world. First, they follow him as a rabbi, a good teacher, and then over the course of his ministry, he slowly reveals God's plan for the redemption of the world through him. In the high point of the book of Mark, and we looked at this last week, Jesus reveals to Peter that he is the coming Messiah. That's what we've named this series, Who Do You Say That I Am? That's the words that Jesus asked to Peter when he reveals he's the Messiah. And immediately, immediately after Jesus reveals this, he turns and he starts teaching that this Messiah, this Christ, is going to suffer and is going to die. And this is so shocking to Peter that he decides to rebuke the Son of God. He says, you're the Son of God, and then just tells him that he's wrong. So it's clear to, to us that Peter did not expect this kind of Savior. He did not expect a Savior to be executed. This wasn't the Messiah that they had been expecting, and it wasn't the Messiah that anybody had been planning on. And Jesus knew this. He knows people will be shocked by what he's saying, that it isn't part of their plan for a Messiah. But this was the Messiah that God had been planning on the whole time. And how do we know that? How do we know it's been part of God's plan? Well, let's take a look at verse 2 in the book of Mark. And he begins his gospel by referencing uh, back to the book of Isaiah, uh, a prophecy about the Messiah. And so Mark chapter, two, or Mark verse 2 rather says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now this quote from the book of Isaiah is actually a mashup of two different passages in the Old Testament. And this is a common practice among biblical authors. They often took two different verses, put them together to show their true context and, uh, and give us their true excuse me, their true meaning. And when Mark quotes this Old Testament prophet, he's making a serious point to us here. He's making the point that Jesus has always been a part of God's plan. That Jesus isn't some sort of emergency spill kit that God pulls out in a pinch when things go awry. Too often we think of God as like us. We think he is reacting to whatever happens and coming up with plans on the go and forgetting that people actually make mistakes. But God is not like us. God's not like us. God has a plan. He has a plan for our failures and our shortcomings. He has a plan for the redemption of the world. And before he created the world, before he created you in your mother's womb, God has always had a plan. And part of God's plan was to have a messenger prepare the way. So if we look to verse 4, it says, John appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. See, this messenger that we read about in Isaiah, that's part of God's, God's plan, was this man named John the Baptist. And a better translation might actually be John the Baptizer, um, that you'll hear him called that sometimes. And he was named after what he did. He was a baptizer. And I love how Mark doesn't take any time to tell us anything about John. He just said, John appeared in the wilderness, right? And we know from uh, the prophets referenced earlier that John is this messenger. He's the one to prepare the way for the Messiah. 
In fact, your Bible probably calls these verses, John the Baptist prepares the way. And you see, at that time, kings and rulers, when we had a, a new king instituted or, or a new a ruler arrive on the scene, they didn't just show up. Hey, I'm your new king. How's it going, guys? No, there was always a herald. There was always somebody to, to come in and call the name of the coming king. I know we don't have heralds in our day, so it's kind of weird for us. The closest thing I could think of was, if you remember the Chicago Bulls introduction from the 1990s, like when everybody's favorite player was Michael Jordan and everybody's favorite team was the Chicago Bulls. You remember that music came on and the announcer said, and now you're Chicago Bulls. If you ever picked up a basketball in the 1990s, like that gives you chills, right? You think about, man, what if my name was announced like that in the stadium? And that's why I like to think of John the Baptist. He's getting us ready for Jesus coming. But John the Baptist isn't exactly hyping us up. In fact, he might kind of be doing the opposite. John is reminding us of our greatest need. You see, Mark says that John was baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. To be taught that you must repent, you must ask for forgiveness, that you're a sinner who needs to be baptized, that was radical teaching for these Jewish people. The reason he was called John the Baptizer is that Jews didn't regularly practice baptism. At that time, Jews were people of the law. They felt close to God and they felt good about themselves by ritual cleansing and ceremonial hand washing, by fasting and making sacrifices and following the strict rules of what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. Baptizing wasn't something that observant Jews thought that they needed. And here comes John telling them, they're sinners who must repent and must be forgiven and must be washed. You see, when we cultivate this image that we know others will like, and we do, quote, all the right things, this is a deeply offensive message to us. It's the exact opposite of what a self-righteous person wants to hear. When we're self-righteous, we want to hear how good we've done. We want to be congratulated on this outward appearance that we've cultivated because we so deeply want to believe that we're capable of making ourselves righteous. Even those of us who are following Jesus, we still hold on to this hope inside of us that we can make ourselves right, that we can make ourselves look good to others and to God. And when we set our hope on being able to make everything right ourselves, this idea that we might fail, that we might need rescuing from something, it's terrifying. This is the type of thinking that Jesus rescued me from. When I was 18 years old, uh, I moved out of state and I went to college and I'd always felt really restricted growing up. Like I could never be my true self and make my own decisions. And so when I moved out of state and went to college, okay, mom and dad, I'm gonna do the things that I've always wanted to do. I'm gonna live life on my terms. Maybe some of you can relate to that. And uh, I started living a life that was a lot different than the life I had growing up in Wasilla, Alaska. I was going to parties and chasing girls. And the only responsibility I had was four college classes. That's all I had to do to show up to. I had no job, no other responsibilities. But you can all guess how that went. After a year of barely passing some of my classes and a fairly reckless lifestyle, 
I decided I was going to turn my life around, right? I was going to do something different. And so I moved to Anchorage. I got my own apartment. I worked full-time, and I went to school full-time, and things seemed to be going better. I had learned this power of my own choices and the impact that it had on my life. But I started to believe this dangerous lie. I started to believe this lie that if you make all the right choices, then things are just going to go well. And if a person just shows up on time, dresses the part, does what they're supposed to do, and says the right things, that everything's going to work out for them just fine. When you say it out loud, it sounds kind of childish, but that's what I've grown to believe from this situation. So fast forward a few years, and life was going poorly again. I was engaged to be married, but it wasn't working out so well. In fact, we were really not sure if we were going to go through with it or not. All my college classes weren't going that well either. And at the bottom of it all, I was struggling just to find meaning in my choices and my accomplishments. And I found myself feeling angry and desperate. It was becoming clear to me that the problem wasn't just with other people outside in the world, but that there was something going on with me. And the problem was that I fell short of my own expectations. Even when I tried to find meaning in my own, uh, meaning in my own accomplishments or my own performance, even when I thought everything, I was doing everything right, things just didn't seem to go my way. But luckily for me, God had a plan. God was meeting me in my suffering. He was meeting me in losing my own meaning and identity, and he used all of this to draw me closer to him. Many of us today are struggling to find meaning in our life by doing all the right things. We're consistently on this roller coaster. We feel good when things are going well and we make the right choices. And then when things go wrong, we feel desperate. We feel like the things we thought we could accomplish are just slipping through our fingers. But even if, even if we're able to create meaning in our life for some time, we still have this lifelong longing for an identity, a way to know who we are uniquely. And the world outside us today is filled with life coaches and self-help gurus and kids' movies. And they tell, all tell us that the problem is not with us. The problem is with the world out there. And this modern version of identity tells us that if, if we could just find our true selves, if we could just tune out the world's influence, then we'd truly be happy. If you could only find your correct racial identity or your sexual preference or gender identity or find what your heart truly desires, then we'd be living true to ourselves. Oh, losing my stand here. That we'd be living true to ourselves and on our way to a fulfilled life. But John's message reminds us of the serious problems with this modern form of identity. That when we look into that spiritual mirror, many of us don't even know what our true self is. And the deeper we look inside, the more we find our own inconsistencies and personal failures. If we're really honest with ourselves, the problem is not that we haven't found our true self. The problem is that our true self is sinful and wicked and in need of rescuing. And if we attempt to believe this lie that we're perfect just the way we are, then we're constantly going to find more and more excuses to overlook our failures, overlook the inconsistencies inside of us, until we're complete, living a life that's completely disjointed from what the truth is. So that's the hard news that John the Baptist delivers, that we must repent and find forgiveness for our sins. It would be offensive to self-righteous Jews in that day, 
and it's offensive to you and me as we attempt to create our own meaning and our own identity. But that bad news, that's the way John the Baptist is preparing the way. He's preparing the world and he's preparing each of us to hear the gospel, to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And the reason it's such good news is because we desperately need it. In the next few verses in Mark, we find that good news, that God has a plan to deal with us in our wickedness. So verse 7 says, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I know that's unfamiliar language for us. Why exactly is John talking about untying Jesus' shoes? But in that day, it was the role of a servant to untie the sandals of the master when they came into the house. You see, the well-to-do were too dignified to be able to have to touch their dirty feet. And so John is simply saying here that whoever comes after him, and he's talking about Jesus here, that he is unfit to even be the servant of Jesus. So I want us to take a minute and think about the life of John the Baptist. We know he was the cousin of Jesus. Uh, He was conceived miraculously and his birth was foretold to the prophet Zechariah. And we know he spent the beginning of his ministry out in the wilderness. Mark tells us he just appeared in the wilderness. And then John comes out of the silence of the desert and begins preaching this message of repentance, of one who is coming. But we know John isn't exactly sure who Jesus is. In the book of Luke, he sends his disciples to ask him, Jesus, are you the one we're looking for? Or is there another? Should we be looking for another? So we know that John the Baptist lived with this incredible faith in God. He had faith to be alone with God in the silence of the wilderness. He had faith to preach a message of repentance to a people and a culture that would be hostile to it. And he had faith to proclaim a savior that he wasn't even sure of the identity of yet. So let's see what kind of savior John had faith in. We're gonna go to verse eight here. And John says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And these few words contain the most important part of John the Baptist's message. One is coming. You need to be forgiven. You need to be rescued from your wickedness. But one is coming, and he is going to rescue you. You see, John knows he's not doing the work of a savior. The baptism of repentance that he was offering, it's not cleansing these people of their sins. Instead, this baptism was preparing the hearts of those being washed in the water for the forgiveness that was to come later in Jesus. This symbolic baptism was looking forward to, it was done in view of a God who would send a savior and wash them permanently. And you see, when Jesus comes into each of our lives, he doesn't just wash our outsides. He permanently changes our hearts. And this baptism of the Holy Spirit that John is talking about, that's the work of Jesus on the cross, that he can exchange our shortcomings with his righteousness. And here's why that's such good news to you and to me. See, if you're like me, and you're constantly tempted to create meaning in your own choices, in your own accomplishments, Jesus has a much better meaning for you. Each time you fall short, or each time the world doesn't go according to your plan, Jesus can give us meaning in our pain. I want to pull something from author and pastor Tim Keller. 
Um, he gives us four unique things about Jesus that gives us meaning, even when we're suffering. So first, Jesus is a weeping Savior. We know we have a God that can identify with us, that can suffer alongside of us. In fact, the most prominent emotion of Jesus in his ministry is grief. That's why Jesus is often called the man of sorrows. Second, we have an angry Savior. Jesus didn't just weep. He just didn't cry about how bad the world was. He was angry. He was angry at the injustice of the world. See, when we see an angry Savior, we can know that Jesus understands that there is injustice in the world, that sometimes we suffer, sometimes things don't go our way, and sometimes it's not our fault. Third, we have a risen Savior. See, not only did Jesus suffer alongside of us, and not only was he outraged at the injustice of the world, but he conquered death. He rose again. That's the promise that we have in Jesus, to live eternally because of him. And last, Jesus was a dying savior. In order for us to live, Jesus died in our place. He exchanged his death for ours. In order to pull us out of the grave, Jesus had to go in it. As you struggle to find your own identity, to be at peace with who you really are and to find your true self, Jesus provides us with a completely new identity. It's one that isn't based off of how you feel that day. It's not based on how the outside world affirms who you are. We receive an identity of an image bearer of God, adopted into his eternal family, and paid for by the blood of Jesus, who is willing to die in our place. The reason this identity is completely different than what the world gives us is it's completely not based on our performance. Not based on anything we do or any choices we make, but based on who we are in Jesus. Okay, so let's go back to John. When he speaks of one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit, he's professing faith in this Jesus to do the work that he could never do. Prophets can deliver a message from God, but they can't change human hearts. Only a perfect God taking on the death that was meant for us can do that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this about Jesus. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So to say it another way, for your and I benefit, for the benefit of you and me, God made Jesus, who was perfect and lived a perfect life, to be our sin so that we could have his righteousness in us. That has been God's plan from the very beginning of creation. That's God's plan for all of us. And that's what John the Baptist was preparing the way for. And so we can begin today by recognizing that need for a Savior, by calling out to him. Even those of you who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, you need to be reminded of where your true meaning and where your true identity comes from. So as we as a church continue through the book of Mark, Jesus is going to be revealed to all of us. Just as he revealed himself to his disciples, he'll reveal himself to you and to the world. First as a teacher, as a rabbi, but Jesus won't stop there. Ultimately, his words are meaningless if he isn't the son of God. Jesus will be revealed as a Messiah, a savior for each one of us. And at the end, We'll get to see Jesus die 
and be resurrected. Because he had to, in order that you and I might live. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. Um, God, we know your word is good and right and life-giving. And I just thank you that we were able to hear it this morning. God, I ask that you prepare the way in each of our hearts. Prepare the way for us to recognize our own need and our own shortcomings. God, I pray for those of us who, who are challenged to, to, who are tempted, constantly tempted to find meaning in our own life, to create our little kingdoms and, and make our own choices, even the things that we think are good, God, that those things will eventually fail us. And God, I pray that we could see the meaning we have in you. And Father, for those of us who struggle with identity, who want to know who we truly are, God, I just pray that you would just come into our hearts and, and, and break down those barriers and give us a new identity in you. And so, Father, we praise you for being the answer to all our problems. God, we praise you for being the solution to the longings of our heart. And God, I pray as we go from this place today that we would be reminded of that. Pray these things in your name.